unwanted Christmas gifts. Did you know that last year, over 61% of Americans claimed to have received at least one unwanted uh, Christmas gift? According to uh, Finder.com, in a survey that they did, Americans spent over $15 billion in unwanted Christmas presents. Uh, most of which continue to remain under the beds and in the closets of Americans throughout the land. They say that it's the thought that counts, but if you find yourself giving a gift that is unwanted, then it kind of begs the question, how much thought did you actually put into it? We all know about unwanted gifts, and many of us um, go through a lot of energy and spend a lot of time and heart and care making sure that the gifts that we give uh, will be enjoyed and well-received by the ones that we love. Well, there was a moment in King David's life when he wanted to give a gift to God that God did not want. He wanted to give a great big gift, an unwanted gift to God. He wanted to build God a temple. And God said, no. Um, it's very interesting in our text for today, in 2 Samuel, this is our lectionary uh, text for today, David had waited many, many, many years from the time when he was anointed by Samuel as a shepherd boy to the time when he was finally uh, installed as king over the southern kingdom of Judah. And then he became king over the northern kingdom as well of Israel, and he brought all the 12 tribes of Israel together under, and united them under one nation. David found himself in Jerusalem and making Jerusalem the capital of the entire 12 tribes, the nation, making it the, its, its heart center for the people. And so this passage that we're looking at this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is kind of like a sweet spot in David's 33-year reign as king over Israel. He has established Jerusalem, as I said, the city of David as the heart center. He has defeated his enemies, the, the Philistines, and he finds himself in this wonderful cedar palace. Um, and, and, he's in, and it says that God gives him rest. He finds this moment in his kingdom, in his kingship, when God gives him rest. And as he is resting, he begins to reflect. And he's reflecting on the fact that he has such a wonderful, comfortable, luxurious place to live in, this cedar house, where God still finds himself living in a tent. And David thinks that this is a problem, and he wants to do something about it. He wants to build God a temple. Uh, so let's take a look. This is where we pick up our story today in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. Now when the king was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. 
Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more, and evildoers shall afflict them no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll be reading this a little bit in chunks as, as the sermon goes on. So David has this idea. He says, God, I'm going to build you a house, and it's going to be really a great house. Now, this is something that in the ancient world, kings were known to do in, in David's day. Um, kings were accustomed to doing. In fact, it was actually a way of legitimizing their kingship, was to build a temple, um, and to centralize their power around that. And so the kings would build these great temples to the gods, and they would worship the gods, and the whole idea was that if they were to build a temple for the gods and lift up the names of the gods, then the gods would give them favor and would bless them. And so, God, if I build you this great temple, God, you will give me favor and you will bless me. You will protect us. You will, um, you will defeat our enemies and you will bring favor to my kingdom. Thinking about this in the way that the ancient kings often related to God, it was kind of a, a conditional relationship, sort of a tit for tat, right? Or a quid pro quo. I do this for you. You do this for me. God, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. It's kind of like a contract. But the God of the Bible is not a God of contracts. The God of the Bible is a God of covenants, a God who makes promises and is faithful to those promises no matter what. And so David is actually kind of falling in line here with the kings of his day, this dream of being like all the other kings, I'm going to build you a great house you can kind of see a little bit of a double motive going on. And this is very common because it's part of the human condition. It's part of the human nature. Most of us find ourselves when we have great dreams or great plans, there's sometimes mixed motives going on. And you can get a sense that this is sort of going on with David. On the one hand, he wants to do something great for God. But on the other hand, he also wants to legitimize his kingship. And so he wants to build great God this temple because it will establish his kingdom um, in the land. And the Lord says, no. I don't want you to build me a house, David. I don't want you to build me a temple. I'm sorry. The answer is no. Now, this has been a year of no's for many of us, hasn't it? And of course, this is kind of like a Christmas of no's as well. Maybe you had plans to go and, and visit family or friends. Or maybe you had plans for 
uh, family to come and visit you from out of town, and those plans have changed. Like many of us in this season, we, we have received a whole lot of no's and changed plans. We've gotten a no. You're experiencing a season of no's. No's to dreams that maybe you had that were unable to come true. Maybe someone in your family, a loved one, or yourself had a wedding planned this year. And maybe you had to change what that wedding would look like. And it wasn't the wedding of your dreams. Uh, maybe you had a graduation. I, I had a graduation this past year that we didn't get to enjoy. I don't really care. But um, for many people, for college students, high school students, my junior high student didn't get to celebrate graduation. I'm sorry. The answer is no. Um, maybe uh, you didn't get to see family during Thanksgiving. Or maybe, you're, maybe you or a kid was supposed to go off to college this year and they couldn't go off to college. Or maybe they did go off to college and you were hoping they'd come back and they can't come back for Christmas. Uh, we've gotten a lot of no's. Others have gotten no's related to their jobs, their places of employment, their dreams for a place of work or a kind of work, things you were excited about. And, God, and somehow God said no. As we see in this text, behind every no from God, there is an even greater yes that we cannot see. There is a yes that, has, that is a truer and even greater alternative to the no that we get. Take a look at verses 11 through 13. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up offspring for you, after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so what's, what's going on here? At one level, God is saying to David, I, I'm not like the other gods. I'm not like those gods that, uh, where you might have to feel like you have to do something for them in order to get favor in return. I am fundamentally different. My love for you, my favor on you comes freely from me. It is not based upon you and your plans to make things great. My choosing of you, my blessing for you is a grace. It is given to you freely out of my character. And furthermore, I want to not only build in you and provide for you a house, but I want to build through you a family. And this family, you think, you see, you think you need a temple, but I have a plan that is so much greater than you can ever imagine. A better plan if you will just trust me. The word for house here in the Hebrew, you see David wants to build God a house, and then God says, I'm going to build you a house. The word for house here is the word beth, and sometimes it is translated house or structure, like brick and mortar, and so sometimes it refers to a temple, a house, like a temple. But sometimes it's referred to as a dynasty or a family. 
You see, the, the thing about the Hebrew language, next week we're actually going to start a series called Seven Hebrew Words That Every Christian Must Know. And, and this, is not, this word is not on the list, but one of the reasons we're doing this is because the Hebrew language has fewer words than the English language, and sometimes the words have multiple different meanings. But the translators have to pick a word from English and put it in there. But if we can unpack some of these words, it helps to enrich our faith. And Beth is one of those words. It doesn't have quite the implications as some of the other ones that we're going to get into. But sometimes it means structure and sometimes it means family. And so the word Bethel means house of God, but it also means family of God. In other words, God is saying, you want to build me a house, a Beth, a house, a temple of brick and mortar, but I'm going to build you a house, a family, a dynasty, a family through you, through which I will actually bring about the restoration of all things. God's yes is so much bigger than God's no. We see this through Jesus, who comes proclaiming what? The kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming is not um, a vertical tower, but it spreads horizontally like yeast or like a mustard seed as it grows because the kingdom of God that Jesus is referring to is a family. It exists not in brick and mortar, but it exists in the human heart. You know, David wants to be a king like all other kings and to build a temple like all the other kings would do. But Jesus reorients this notion of kingdom and says, my kingdom is a family. And it's based on this outpouring of grace and love that he has for us. And, and we're invited into it. I, the Lord says, am going to build you a house. As Americans, we're, we're very much prone to think um, we need to get busy for God. We're going to help God out. He really needs our help. And so we're going to get to work, we're going to get involved, and we're going to do projects and programs and ministry. And we, we better help him out because if we don't, his kingdom won't grow. Maybe it'll kind of fall apart or his church will crumble. So we better get in gear and, and help God. He really needs our help. And we have this great sense of wanting to work for God. It's part of the industrialization of what it means to be American. And this is a good thing in a sense, right? Because, of course, this is largely how we respond to God's grace to go and to get to work, to participate in the work of the kingdom. God wants our participation. And as we do that, it's important that we pay attention to the words that we use and, uh, and the words that Jesus uses when he talks about our participation in kingdom work in the world. So when talking about our participation in the kingdom, Jesus never uses words like, we're going to further God's kingdom. Never says that. He never says we're going to expand God's kingdom. And he never says we are going to build God's kingdom. You can, I encourage you to challenge me on this. Prove me wrong. Instead, what we find are words that are responsive and relational. And so we wait for the kingdom. We see the kingdom. We enter the kingdom. We seek first the kingdom. We inherit the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. And we declare that it has come. We don't build God's house. We don't build God's kingdom. 
That's God's job. We bear witness to what God is doing in the world, and we join in that Spirit's work as a grace, as a gift of grace. But still, this is hard for David, this no. God gave him a no. It's still a no, and it's a no to a kind of kingship that he imagined, kind of kingship that, that would have been respected in his day. And it's a no because it's a yes to something else, a yes to something that he couldn't imagine it would be. To be a respected king, you've got to have massive buildings, and you've got to have a great temple, and God says no. But we can learn from David a little bit in terms of how he responded to the no that he got from God for the no's that we get in our lives. Whether it's a no to, to get to work on some kind of project or whether it's a no for a plan or a desire that we had for this Christmas or this year. And so as we look at David and how he responds to this no, there are three things that we can see. And, and learn from David as we follow his lead. And the first is to sit with God. When we get a no in our lives, we can sit with God. This is what David did when God said no. Take a look at verse 18. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? I don't know about you, but when I get a no in my life, my first instinct is not to go and pray and not to go and reflect on the things that I'm grateful for and to reflect on the ways in which God has brought me thus far. My first instinct is when I, when I get a no is to do everything I can to try to turn the no into a yes. You know, I might want to negotiate with God a little bit. Lord, maybe I can, well, what about a smaller temple? Maybe a, you know, a mid-sized temple? or maybe a horizontal temple, or what if I build you a nice great big garden and we can bring in the exotic animals? David doesn't do that. David sits with God and he reflects on how far God has brought him. And so we can take this lesson from David that when we get a no in our, in our lives, to just pause for a moment and to just spend some time with God. Lord, what, what, is, what, is, the, what is the yes? If there is a no, there's got to be an even greater yes. Lord, you have brought me thus far. You have been good to me. You'll also notice in this passage that as he sits and he doesn't know what to say, he essentially says, who am I? I trust that you know best. And I love how Eugene Peterson remarks on this passage with respect to what David is doing here, he says this, that this is the action that put him out of action. This is the action that put him out of action. He was grabbing the bull by the horns, and now he shifts in faith to look towards God. What does that mean? Simply this, that before we move on from a dream, before we start to think about what's next, before we try to make new plans or move to plan B, before we start to think about those things, sometimes the most faithful thing that we can do is to not act, but to just sit and to wait on God, to be in his presence and to be grateful for what he has done in our lives. So after we sit with God for a little while, we notice that Dave, David took time to talk with a friend. 
He talks with his friend Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. You know, prophets are those who are called by God and they're given a unique ability to hear directly from God and to speak on God's behalf, oftentimes a word of correction to the people. And Nathan and David are close, and Nathan is, is speaking to David, and he, they spend time together. And it's interesting to note that God doesn't give the no directly to David. He gives the no to Nathan to then go and to tell David. You know, I know that for me in my life, um, sometimes when there's a no that comes in my life, it doesn't, it doesn't come through my own imagination. It comes through God's voice, through a friend. Most of the time it's Devin, uh, but other friends as well as, as the way in which God begins to communicate with me. Nathan helps David to see that this no is not a rejection of him. It is not an eternal no, but it is, it is simply a no to David's plan and to say that God has an even greater plan. So behind the no is a deeper yes to David. I don't need you to build me a temple or a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to bless you. Sometimes our plans we think are our, bless, our best plans, but God's, plan, God's ways are not our ways, and his plans are greater than our plans. And so Nathan helped David to redirect that energy the energy from the original plan. You know, there was a lot of energy that he had behind this plan of wanting to build a temple. And same thing, when we get a no in our lives, the, the thing that we wanted to do, whatever our plan is, there's energy behind it, there's life behind it, there's readiness behind it, and we've got to redirect that energy. Um, and, and so sometimes we can have a friend who can help redirect that energy in a better way. So... God doesn't say no to us. His, his, he has given us an eternal yes uh, as his children. So where can we put that energy? And then finally, we actually look be, beyond David. We look with David to the promises of God, and then we look beyond David as we look to Christ as the fulfillment of God's yes. In verse 25, it says, Now, O Lord God, as for the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. Confirm it forever. Do as you have promised. Do as you have promised. We don't always get the why behind the no. We don't always know why God says no or not right now or not yet or not in this way. But here's what we do know, that God has made a promise to us, his people, and David points to that promise in this text, and he says, all of your promises are sure because you are a trustworthy God. Now, the interesting irony or awkwardness about this text is that by the time that it was written down, by the time it was penned, you remember God promised a son to David that who would build his house? Well, that comes true in Solomon. Solomon, David's son, builds the temple and expands the, the, uh, the kingdom and the dynasty. But by the time this is written down, Solomon's temple had been destroyed. And the last of, David's, the, last of the kings, King Zedekiah, as I mentioned last week, had his eyes gouged out, and they were hauled off to Babylon. And it's as though the whole kingdom, the whole dynasty, had come to a grinding halt, and it was over. 
And then so for hundreds of years, people wondered, the people of Israel wondered, how is God going to fulfill that promise? He gave this promise to David, fulfilled it so it seemed, Solomon built a house, but now it's all gone. Until one day in a little village in a blue-collar town, uh, in David's town in Bethlehem, a blue-collar person, kind of like David, actually carrying some of the DNA of David himself, is born of a virgin. And the angel that comes to Mary says to him, this will be the son of David. He will be in the line of David, and hit on his throne he will sit, and his kingdom will never end. David could never have imagined what God's ultimate yes would have been in Jesus. And did Jesus ever get a no from God? Yes, he did. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on his final night on this earth, he prayed, he's sitting with God, he's sitting with his friends, and he cries out to God, Father, take this cup from me. And God says, no. And he responds, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. And what happens, of course, after that is that Jesus embraces God's no, and he makes his way to the cross, and he dies on the cross. And it's as though, again, like David's kingdom, it was all over until God's no turns into a, a yes that was unimaginable three days later when Jesus rose from the dead. Turning the no into a yes, an even greater yes. And so the good news for us this morning is that God's no is never the end of the story. The no's we experience in this season will come to an end and will be replaced by an even greater yes. This season too shall pass, and we will move from disorientation to an entirely new way of living, a new orientation. And so we know and we live and we celebrate out of the promise of the resurrection and the empty tomb. And this family that we get to be a part of is because of the grace that is offered to us by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He didn't try to turn that no into a yes. The story is bigger than you and me, and it is bigger than this season that we find ourselves in. God has made promises that are true and are still unfolding, and God is promising to work out these promises through us as we pursue Him. And when we look at Paul, we see this briefly, and I'll close with this, in 2 Corinthians 1, He's reflecting on how far God has brought him as a Jewish leader, follower of Jesus, through the covenants of Abraham and the covenant of Moses and today's text, the covenant of David. And he says this, For in Christ, every one of God's promises is a yes. And for this reason, it is through him that we say, Amen. Every promise of God is a yes in Jesus Christ. You may be getting a no in your life right now. I hope that you create the space 
to sit with God, to sit with that no for a while, to reflect on how far God has brought you, to talk with a friend to help redirect that energy, knowing that there's a bigger story going on and that in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen to you. God, we thank you for Jesus, the Lord of our life, the Savior of our life, the center of our life and our story. We pray that like David, we will find the space to know you, to sit with you, to hear your voice in our lives, to respond faithfully, to look to Christ for how you are making all things new in the, in the world and in each of our hearts. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.